We are very privileged this morning to welcome to the pulpit of our church Dr. Joseph Piper. Joey, as he prefers to be called, Dr. Piper is the president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He is one of the great conservative leaders of our, congr- of our, of our denomination. I hope that you will pray for him, pray for the seminary. He has met with some of our session members last evening, and he has met with the potential officers training class this morning. He will be preaching this morning and this evening. And when Dr. Piper suggested the possibility of Psalm 100 and the purpose of worship, I really jumped on it. I thought that is something that we certainly would need to hear from Dr. Piper. God has created us to be worshipers, and so he will be focusing on the 100th Psalm. Dr. Piper is uh, a preacher, a teacher, an author. He earned his PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary. But what really is important about Dr. Piper is that he holds his SS degree, just as all of you do who know the Lord Jesus Christ, sinner saved. He didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. It was gratuitously bestowed by a God of love and mercy. Dr. Piper, we welcome you to our pulpit and to our congregation today. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Get dressed. Well, it's a wonderful privilege to uh, be with you on this Lord's Day. There's just a slight correction and introduction. Um, I am conservative, confessional, but I'm not really a great leader. So, but sinner saved by grace and a confessional. Uh, conservative, but uh, a like-minded brother with your pastor, and it's a wonderful privilege to be here and to see what God's Spirit does through uh, a commitment to the prayerful use of the simple means of God's grace. Uh, Mr. Campbell has put uh, some information about the seminary in the fellowship hall. Uh, There's not nearly enough to go around, so first come, first serve, but there is a sign-up sheet, and so if you would uh, want to learn more about the seminary, pray for us, uh, give us your name and address there, and then you can get the material that you couldn't get this morning. Let's turn our attention to Psalm 100. <clears throat> a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he's God. It is he who made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forevermore. Let us pray. O Holy One, we thank you for your word. We pray now that the Spirit who inspired these words will illumine our understanding and grant that in their preaching we would hear the living voice of Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
in order to use something correctly, you need to use it according to its nature and purpose. Some of you will remember, it's been a long time now, uh, 30, 20-something years ago when they began to bring out uh, desktop computers, that, that the computer had a little uh, button you pushed and out came this round thing. And uh, people began to call the tech center of the computer manufacturer and say, my cup holder's broken. That made sense, didn't it? We didn't know what a CD was in those days. And most of us don't bother to read direction manuals. So we just push buttons and out comes, what's the perfect size for my coffee cup or my Coke can? And so we use it as a cup holder and what do we do? We break it. We break it because we're not using it according to its design and purpose. Now that's true of mechanical things. It's true philosophically and theologically. And it's certainly true with respect to worship. If we do not use or do or perform worship according to its design and nature, we're going to break it. And that's exactly what is happening today in our own denomination and across uh, the world. We are using worship, or what men would call worship, for things for which God has not designed it. And thus we're not really worshiping, we're breaking worship, and in breaking worship we are really hurting the church and God's people. And so this morning I want to refresh your memories from Psalm 100 about the nature, the design, the purpose of God's worship. It's a very fitting psalm to do such. It's the conclusion of a little set of psalms that I refer to as Messianic Kingdom Psalms. Psalm 93 through Psalm 100. They're psalms that set before us prophetically uh, the kingship and the universal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a very fitting climax to this little section, Psalm 100. You'll notice it's a liturgical psalm. Uh, And so the heading, we're told that this is a psalm for giving thanks, or literally a psalm of thanksgiving. And so it's a psalm the Holy Spirit uses to teach us about worship. And that's why we're going to look at it this morning. Under the heading are the principle that because of who God is and what He does, we are exuberantly to serve Him in corporate worship. Now get that. Because of who God is and what He does, we are exuberantly to serve Him in corporate worship. We'll consider three things from these verses, the duty of worship, the purpose of worship, and the grounds of worship. Well, as we start with the duty of worship in considering that we are to worship God, to serve Him corporately, you notice that we have a series of commandments. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. Come into His presence. Enter His gates. A series of imperatives. God is setting before us a requirement that he has for his people. Now we know that as Christians we are to serve God in all of life. And the New Testament does take uh, uh, terminology of, of, of temple worship to talk about um, the lives that we live. Our catechism captures that, that we are to um, 
uh, worship and to, and to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Or Paul uses the language in Romans 12 that we present our bodies as living sacrifices. But of course, that does not exhaust the purposes of worship. Our confession of faith um, teaches us in the chapter on worship that we are to worship God in all places, in private and families, and particularly in corporate worship. And this psalm, if you pay attention to it, uh, is calling us to corporate worship. There's at least three things that point this out. In the first place, you don't see it as easily, but all the commandments are in the second person plural. Uh, The psalmist is saying, y'all, you all do these things. Moreover, the commandments take place within the center of worship at the temple. We are to uh, come into God's courts, to enter the gates of his house and of his temple. And then, of course, you'll notice from the psalm that these are liturgical acts that we're called uh, on to do uh, to God in these places, that we are to come into his presence with uh, singing. We are to uh, give thanks. We are to praise him. We are to bless his name. And so the psalm is calling us to this work of corporate worship. Private worship is very important. Family worship is very important. But the pinnacle is this corporate worship. But notice as well, it's not just to us gathered here today. It wasn't just to the people uh, to whom the psalmist first wrote these words, but actually all the people of the earth. In verse 1, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Now, you could take the word earth here to refer simply to the land of God's covenant people. But in this selection of what I'm calling Messianic Kingdom Psalms, they're psalms that are projecting the reign of King Jesus as he will come in the future to the ends of the earth. And so in the context, uh, chapter 96, verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Uh, 97, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. And in the Hebrew, the word is islands. Uh, uh, Israel didn't have islands. Uh, This word islands or coastlands in the Old Testament was a technical word to talk about the Gentiles. Now, of course, this is anticipating the reign of Christ, which will be from the rising to the setting of the sun. But it states even a more, I think, serious principle, and that is all people are obligated to worship God. It is the greatest commandment. That's why the first four commandments focus on the worship of God. And I want you to understand this morning that there's no sin more severe than idolatry. There's nothing more heinous in the sight of God than the refusal to worship Him through the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that He has appointed We really see this quite clearly in in Romans chapter 1. Excuse me. Uh, As Paul is showing the wrath of God against uh, sin and unrighteousness, he says in verse 22, Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. So they turned to idolatry. Verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading 
passions. You see how jealous God is of his worship and his honor. And if you're here today and you've got your moral checklist and you consider yourself to be morally superior to those people who live around you and you're trusting your moral superiority to get you to heaven, I want you to understand that if you refuse to come to God on his terms through the Lord Jesus Christ, if you refuse to worship him in the way that he has appointed You are under his wrath and condemnation regardless of how morally superior you think you are, how self-righteous you are. If you are not obeying the commandment of God to come to him through Christ, by the Spirit, in the way that he's appointed, you're lost and you're going to hell. The whole purpose of this little set of psalms is to set before you The Lord Jesus Christ, yes, he's king, but he's king because he's the lamb who sacrificed himself that his people might be saved. And if even now the Spirit would convict you of the hypocrisy of your self-righteousness and show you the horrendous nature of your idolatry, then, dear friend, I exhort you, encourage you, plead with you that you would turn from your sin and take hold of Jesus Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel that you might be pardoned your idolatry, but you might begin in Christ to keep this commandment. So it is addressed to all people, but of course it's particularly addressed to us as God's covenant people. As we were so well reminded uh, through the sacrament of baptism. And we see here in verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God, it's He who made us, and we are His, we're His people, and the sheep of his pasture. It's to God's covenant people in particular that this is addressed. No longer simply Jewish people, though, but God's people unto the ends of the earth. There's no greater thing that you and I can do than gather on the Lord's day and offer to God the worship that is due to him alone and that he requires of us. You see, it's for this reason that he has redeemed us. He didn't save us to keep us from going to hell. If that were his concern, then he could have saved everybody. He saved us to have a people for his own possession, for his glory and honor, to worship him in all of life, yes, but particularly in the corporate assembly as we are gathered here this day. You remember when Moses appeared before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, why shall I let you go? He said, let us go three days uh, to a place that God has appointed that we might do what? Worship him. Was that subterfuge? Was that simply a way to get out of the land? No. It is for that reason, above all other reasons, that he assembled them at Mount Sinai and declared as he gathered them there that they indeed were peculiar people of his own possession, a kingdom of priests. And of course, what does Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? That God is a spirit and is seeking a people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so if you are redeemed this morning, you're a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you see God has redeemed you to be a part of this worshiping body, of other worshiping bodies, and anticipation of the worship that we'll offer to him forever in heaven. And so you see, it is a duty. It's hard to call it a duty. 
Because it's a grand privilege, isn't it? To come and to worship our God, our Father, our Savior, our Comforter and Encourager. Well, with that foundation, the centerpiece of this psalm is really about what worship is all about. So I haven't seen the duty of worship as we're thinking about because of who God is and what he does, we are exuberantly to serve him in corporate worship. What is this service? What is this purpose? What is the nature of this worship? And I can summarize it in a simple sentence, to serve God in his special presence. This is what corporate worship is all about, to serve God in his special presence. Now you see that's one of the commandments in verse 2, serve the Lord Jehovah with gladness. In the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, there are three primary words for worship, translated the same way, even though they're different Hebrew and Greek words. Uh, The first is the broadest term that we most often translate worship. It's a word that means to give obeisance, uh, homage, and honor. And then the most narrow term is often translated uh, to minister. And it's used uh, particularly of liturgical acts of the priests and Levites in the Old Testament. And, for example, it's used in Acts chapter 13 when um, Saul and Barnabas and the others are gathered in fasting and prayer. And it says they're ministering to the Lord. And it's, this is the word that we get the English term liturgy from. And, and so this, the, the most narrow term has to do with, with how we serve God, how we worship God, the things that we do. And then the uh, word that we have in our text to serve God is a very interesting word because it's the same word that's used for the work of a slave or a servant. Now, I want you to think about that because it's, it's a concept that is quite profound and greatly misunderstood. It's one of the reasons today that worship is being abused and misused. You see, worship... We talk about a worship service. I was, I was converted at, at McElwain Presbyterian Church in Pensacola, and they had a, a green hymnal, and it was called the Worship Service Hymnal. And it's just taking those two words. It's the service of worship. It's the work of worship. And that when God says to come and serve him, he's saying we are to labor in his presence. That you have a work to do. And the work that you do from your preparation and call to worship right up through the benediction is a work that encompasses everything that is being done in the service. Now, the misunderstanding today, and one of the things that's driving um, innovations in uh, worship is to make it more participatory. Have you heard that? Uh, We hear that often. We need to make worship more participatory. Although for the the life of me, I cannot find how having stage presentations and all the other things make worship more participatory. But anyway, that's that's the slogan. But you see, you should be participating in everything that's going on in worship. Not just in the things that you're doing out loud with your voice. Our confession of faith says that... um, Part of the elements of worship are the uh, reading of the Word of God and the conscionable hearing of preaching, which means the diligent and careful 
listening to the sermon. So right now you're either worshiping well or not well at all. If you're still with me, then okay. Um, ah, that's pretty good. You're listening. <laughs> you see, the prayers that are offered are our prayers. The scripture that's read is God's covenant word to you. The preaching is Christ himself speaking in our presence. And we are to be laboring with faith and love to make all the words our words, to have affections that rise up to God, and to listen in faith and submission and love to the preaching of the Word of God. And so you're, you should be working. And that's just the opposite of our attitude, isn't it? We, we're, we're the television generation, and we're used to being passively brought along and, and entertained Sesame Street style. But no! We've come to do a work. If you understand what we're about, you've come to do a work. And every part of it is part of your work. So we are to serve God in our worship. And then you notice I said we are to serve him in his special presence. Now, as the psalmist wrote this, the temple was the figure and the center of God's special presence. And so we are commanded in verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. This is talking about the temple. And you remember that in the temple, that uh, glory cloud came down and that the glory cloud was in the holy of holies. And the glory cloud was a physical manifestation of the presence of the triune God. And so the temple was the focal point and center of worship. When David would be exiled from the tabernacle, uh, he longed for the courts of the Lord. Now, he, he enjoyed the presence of the Lord, but not as it was manifested in the temple. Now, we don't have a temple any longer, do we? Do we? We do. We have a very strange kind of temple. Uh, Christ is our temple, and we are the temple. We are living stones that make up the body of Christ, who said to destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And thus, because Christ is our temple, our worship, as again as our confession says, is no longer tied to a place. Our worship is where God's people are gathered under the priesthood of King Jesus to offer corporate worship to him. And so it can take place in all kinds of places, in beautiful buildings and out under a tree, on the mission field, in a strip center. It matters not. But what I want you to understand now is that in corporate worship, we come into his presence in a very special way. Now, it's true that you enjoy God's presence as David did in exile in the wilderness when you pray when you meditate uh, in family worship. But what we see here is there's a peculiar expression of God's presence in corporate worship. And that expression is we levitate. We are taken through that call of worship into the courtroom of heaven. You know that remarkable vision that Ezekiel had about this temple that 
Every time I get there in my reading, I'm, I'm kind of stumbling along. But I saw something this, this time around in particular that maybe just refreshed something I knew or because I was meditating on this. But in chapter 46, when the people would come into the temple, the prince would enter. And he would be there. And when they left, he would leave. And I got to thinking about it. That's exactly what's happening you know, Psalm 22 tells us that as we worship, he's the hymn, sing, the hymn leader. He's the proclaimer of the reconciliation of God. And the writer of the Hebrews reminds us in chapter 12 uh, that uh, we are, in a strange way, uh, participating in the glories of heaven. We've not come to Mount Sinai. No, he says in chapter uh, 12, uh, verse 22, but you've come to Mount Zion, which in the, the Psalms, of course, is type of the church, to the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to spirits of the righteous or just made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. It's remarkable. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we worship in the presence of angels. I love angels. Another day we'll talk about angels. Just don't hang them on your Christmas tree, okay? They are glorious creatures. <laughs> but anyway, so we are in, in, in the throne room of heaven in a very peculiar manner as we now are here worshiping God. Be gripped by that. Now, if you are, it's going to affect your attitude, your posture, might I say your dress, how you behave as you enter the courts of the Lord. See, all these things should be impacted with the realization of where we are. Now, what do we do in this service to God offered in His special presence? Well, we do three things. In the first place, we offer Him exuberant worship. We are doing those things that He's commanded us to do. So we are praising and praying and blessing and and thanking. The very deeds that we do in corporate worship, uh, these are the things that we're serving God with. They're the things that He's appointed. We didn't invent them. That's why the the regular principle of worship is so very important. We're coming to the King. He tells us what He wants us to do. And out of gratitude, we then want to do what He wants us to do. And so we come and do this. But I really want you to notice this need of exuberance because Presbyterian worship is not um, marked by exuberance too much, is it? Make a joyful noise to the Lord and serve Him with gladness. The Bible says shout in this, literally in this translation, uh, or in the the Hebrew that we have here. And so there's to be a, a joyous exuberance that marks us as we go through the things that God has told us He wants us to do but there's to be a heartbeat to it. And there's to be an involvement of the whole person in it. You know, as people that we're the image of God, it's not disembodied souls. And we need to worship God with our bodies. That's why posture in worship is so very important. And there's many things that we could do with that on another day to worship God exuberantly. 
Second thing that we do in serving God is we commune with him. We see that in the language as well. Verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. Know. Come into his presence with singing and know him. Know him experimentally. Know him intimately. Know him as father and as redeemer. And this whole communion element of worship is so very important. It, again, marks out how we approach the liturgy of worship. Uh, that God speaks covenantally and we respond. But we don't just go through these um, liturgical uh, motions of initiative and response. No, God is speaking to us. He's speaking love words to us. He's revealing himself to us. And we're to respond to him with love words that he's dictated to us in Scripture through song and, and prayer and thanksgiving. And he tells us how much he loves us and we tell him how much we love him. And uh, that's a missing element in much worship today, this adoration. Love words to, to the lovely one, to tell him how lovely he is. You know, your wives will be very disappointed if you quit telling them how lovely they are. Even at 70, my wife will be 70 Thursday. It's hard to believe I married an older woman. <laughs> but she's as lovely now, in fact, more so than she was the day I married her 45 years ago. But if I didn't tell her, that'd be so sad, wouldn't it? I love her. And I tell her I love her. Do you love God? When's the last time you told God you love him? He tells you all the time. He tells you in all the parts of worship. Respond to him from your hearts with love. So we are communing. This two-way conversation is taking place in worship. And then, as an inference of the first two, worship is then to us a means of grace. In fact, it's the most profound means of grace. So, you know, the older writers like Bannerman would point this out because there, uh, even the things that we can do elsewhere, there are special blessings attached to those in corporate worship, such as reading and praying. But there's so many things that we only do in corporate worship, preaching and the sacraments, that uh, belong here. And so God has taken the very things He's given for us to commune with Him to enable us to commune with one another, but also to feed on Christ and to grow in grace and godliness. It's great, isn't it? But now you begin to see what worship is all about. And it's all about God and uh, not about us. It's this service offered to God in His special presence. Which leads us to the third thing. So we've seen the, the duty of worship. We've seen the nature, purpose, design of worship. We look then at the grounds of worship. Now, if you pay close attention to the psalm, you'll see that it's actually two sections. And each section has commandment and reasons. And so we've got verses 1 and 2 are the commands to worship God with the reason. In verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. It's He who made us, not we. Are. I go back to my translation. It is He who made us, and we are His. And you'll see in your footnote... Uh, and not we ourselves. Uh, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And then again in verse 4, a commandment to worship with verse 5, the word for. Why? Why do you worship God? For because the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. So in these two sections with their twofold commandment, we find three grounds of worship. Um, the names of God, who he is, uh, the works of God, and the attributes or characteristics of God. These are the things that inform our worship. 
And so the psalmist begins reminding us of who God is. Know that Jehovah, he is God. There are many who claim the last name God. In fact, the Hebrew word here is used for false gods as well as the true God. But it's a very important term, this last name of God. It's the Hebrew Elohim. And we're first introduced to it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. He is the all-powerful, sovereign creator and providential sustainer and ruler of all things. And so in this name of God, he set before us in all of his majesty and power and sovereignty and might. But because there are interlopers who claim that name for themselves, notice the grammar, know that Jehovah, he is Elohim. This is his first name. You read it, it's so impersonal in in our Bibles, Lord and all caps. It's the name Jehovah or Yahweh. You children, remember the story of Moses up on Mount Sinai? And he's up there with his father-in-law's sheep, and he sees a very unusual sight. Remember what it is, boys and girls? It's a bush that's on fire, and it doesn't burn up. Now, that's very strange, isn't it? It's getting to be cool, and pretty soon we'll get to have some fire in our fireplaces. And what happens to the wood that goes in the fireplace? It burns up because fire needs fuel. That's why this bush was so strange. It was like a gas heater. It just kept burning. So Moses turns aside to look at it. Whoa. Out of the bush, the angel of Jehovah, God the Son, spoke. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And commissions Moses to go to Egypt to deliver the people. And Moses says, well, whom shall I say sent me? What's, what's my commission? What's my certification? And he gives him a verb. I am who I am, sent you. And it's from that verb that we get the word Yahweh or Jehovah. But I want you to see the connection. A bush, a fire that doesn't burn up a bush is a fire that's self-sustaining, right? It needs no fuel. That's God. He is self-sustaining. He needs nothing else. He's independent. He is eternal. That's the root of the idea of Jehovah or Yahweh translated L-O-R-D. But then he makes that his personal name. It's his covenant name. It's the name by which we know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in these two names is really the the foundation of all that God is. As the um, all-powerful, sovereign uh, creator, ruler, and governor, as the glorious, beautiful, eternal, personal covenant God and Savior. Now that leads to the two works that... uh, become the ground of our worship, and that is, it is he who made us, we're his, we're his people, and the sheep of his pasture. He's our creator physically, and just as he made Adam and Eve supernaturally, so he tells us in Psalm 139 that he forms each of us in the wombs of our mother. He's the giver of life. He creates each of us individually and distinctly, and so he is our maker. So Elohim, the creator, is the one who is made and governed and rules over each one of us. Thus, he is to be worshipped. But the real focus here of the psalmist is he is our redeemer. It is he who made us, we are his, we are his people. As we sing his folk and the sheep of his pasture. He is our redeemer. He is our Jehovah. 
How can we not worship this great God who owns us and now his blood bought us? We're twice over his, made for his glory and his honor. And we should respond to that with such wonder and awe and thanksgiving and want to give him everything, all of our obedience, as well as our corporate worship. And then the psalmist in the second section tells us more about God. That's the use of God's attributes, his characteristics. When I talk to my wife this afternoon, I'll describe to her this beautiful room in which we have worshipped God, and I'll talk about the wooden pitched ceiling and the pastel walls, the pillars, the beautiful stained glass window, raised pulpit. These are all attributes of this, of this room, and it will help her understand that which she's not been able to see. And that's what God's attributes do for us. And you will notice in this uh, concluding verse 5 that we have four of God's attributes. The Lord is good, His steadfast love, which is His loving kindness, uh, endures forever, His faithfulness to all generations. The goodness of God is something that we don't think about nearly enough. It's, it's, God says in Exodus 33 and 34, it's His glory. You know, if you ask me, what's the, what's the glory of God? Well, his sovereignty or whatever. No. He says, you want to see my glory? It's my, I'll let my goodness pass before you. And he proclaims five things about himself. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and full of loving kindness and faithfulness. Your God is so good. A compassionate Father that bears with you because he knows that you are but dust. We commit a sin, we confess it, and what do we do? We commit it again. He's patient and long-suffering. He's the God from whom grace just flows to us through Christ by the Holy Spirit. He's good. He's so good. And he is uh, full of loving kindness. The word means covenant love. It's not just the general love of God. It's the love he has for his elect people. And uh, here we are reminded that this goodness of God is expressed in this steadfast or covenant love. And then often put with his, his loving kindness is his faithfulness, that he is unerring, he's absolutely true. All his promises are yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He does everything that he has promised to do for you. And that's been your experience, hasn't it? You've known the goodness of God. You've known the loving kindness of God. You know his faithfulness, don't you? And then he's eternal. We've already saw that in Jehovah, but now it's spelled out doubly. His, his, his loving kindness is forever and his faithfulness to all generations. He's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All we read about him in Scripture, he is to you. Do you see why I talk now about the, the grounds of worship? Who he is, what his characteristics are, what are his great works? And if these are the grounds of worship, then you see how you are to approach him. And here we get to the importance of preparation. One of the reasons our worship is often dull and boring is that we've not taken time to commune with him before we've come into his presence. But the psalmist lays this out to remind us that we should be taking characteristics of God, names and works, attributes, and particularly as he does them in our lives. Not just generally, but how you've experienced these things. You take them and you meditate before you come into his presence. 
Preparation is so very, very important. And so I've sought to show you here this principle that because of who God is and what he does, we are exuberantly to serve him in his special presence. It's a duty. We've seen the design of it. We've seen the ground of it. Two very important implications. The first is our worship is to be God-focused and not man-focused. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that what this is all about? We're coming to his presence. We're coming to serve him. But see, immediately, here's where we begin. We're abusing worship. We've made worship man-centered. We've made worship designed to uh, move us, to move our emotions. How do I feel? We want everybody to leave feeling good about themselves. You know, if non-Christians leave here this morning and you feel good about yourself, you know who you've not met today? God. You cannot have been in the presence of God and know it and feel good about yourself. And that's why we don't fill this service full of all kinds of gimmicks and uh, innovations to make you feel comfortable. We want you welcome. And we do strange things, and we'll explain to you why we do them, but we do not want you feeling good about yourself. We want you to know that you're under God's wrath and condemnation until you're reconciled to him the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're here to offer you Christ as we've already done, right? So you can leave at peace with God if you will come to him on his terms. Anyway, we're not, this is not designed for us. It's designed for God. It's not designed to make us feel good. Now, our emotions will be moved if we have worshiped God well. Take the analogy of marriage. If, If the husband and wife in the marriage are seeking their own emotional fulfillment That is a recipe for what? Disaster. But if I serve my wife and love her sacrificially, I'm going to be moved to the very depth of my being emotionally. Right? You've experienced that. I hope. If I come and seek God in the way that he has appointed, I shall be moved to the very depth of my being. Profoundly. Transformatively. And so worship is to focus on God. Yes, there's a horizontal element to it. We're to sing to him. We're to sing to one another. We pray to him. We praise him. We pray for one another. But God is the focus. Second, worship is to be covenantal and not evangelistic. You got to see this. Well, we're going to preach the gospel. We hope that unconverted people always be present. And we will set Christ before you. And we will preach the law to you. But worship is to be designed for God's people. The psalm, that's what it's all about. It's covenantal. Know that the Lord, He is God. He made us. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. We come into His gates, His courts, to bless and thank Him. And the great problem today is that we've made worship man-centered and we are seeking to bring people through evangelism Uh, turning worship into evangelism. You understand that? In 2004, I had the privilege of ministering over in Israel, and I stayed in the home of an Israeli Christian family. And providentially, the day that I got there, it was um, uh, one of their younger son's birthdays. And they were having a birthday party that night, and I was going to get to go to the birthday party. But that presented a problem, because they were eating Middle Eastern food and singing... Uh, Hebrew songs and playing culturally Israeli birthday games. 
what are we going to do with Piper? Well, they could have changed everything and had a birthday party where I'd be very comfortable, have American food and play American games and sing happy birthday. If they'd done that, whose party would it have become? Mine. And not the boys. And when we turn worship into an evangelistic enterprise, now, mind me, we preach the gospel, don't we? Have you heard the gospel this morning? But that's not what we're about. We're about... God's covenant people fulfilling this great privilege of worshiping him. And that's what we must do. That's what pleases him. Now, at that party, they came alongside me and explained to me what was going on. And we need to do that for our friends as they come in. But we're not going to change it for you. I know it's strange. But it's all by God's design. And so we'll be glad to explain to you what we're doing. We'll bear along with you and help you understand it. But we may not change it, dear friends. And that's putting the cup in the CD player. And so may God, you you know all of this. And I know you know this. I'm simply trying to reinforce with you what your pastor and elders are teaching you. But be refreshed in what God has called us to do. And stand firmly in Christ. Seek God in worship in this way. Train your children how to worship. And let Christ be glorified in our midst. Amen.